okay. This is our next to the last session. This is nap time. For some of us, perhaps. Thanks. <laughs> I want you to understand that I know that it's a lot of I know it's a lot of lessons today, okay? I, I got that part figured out. Um, I know that it's that time of the afternoon, we've had a big meal, we've had a little, little exercise, and um, I know some of us may have had a, a little bit of a short night last night, we, we slept in a, a strange bedroom perhaps, and I know that it's kind of that time in the afternoon when we go, what did he say? But knowing that, that's why I want to start this way, I want us to really try to focus in on this lesson because this lesson is just as important and just as vital as the first one last night when we were all, you know, wide awake. So, in fact, if you look at these lessons, they kind of build up to a crescendo. So, I would ask you to try to do everything in your power to stay awake and I'll do the same and uh, we will do fine here. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. That scripture says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I'm grateful that we're taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit in the same session. And as we continue on, you will find out why. But first, let's talk for a few minutes about the helmet of salvation. Obviously, the helmet... You know, you struggle with some of these to say, okay, what can I say different that they haven't heard before? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure anything, but I'm going to try. The helmet, obviously, protects the head, protects the brain. What I want for us to understand is, is that Satan focuses his attacks on our minds. That is where the battle is always either won or lost first. That is critical. The battle is either won or lost first in our minds. That is why we need the helmet of salvation. Please open with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. And we will talk about this battlefield where the battle first takes place. You'd think I'd, by tonight I'll learn to stop walking over that cord. <laughs> Something's got to, thanks, no problem. <laughs> um, James chapter 1 verse 12. Watch this. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Is temptation the same thing as sin. No, for our Lord was tempted himself in all things, yet without sin, Hebrews chapter 4. But temptation is where it begins, the battlefield of the mind. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, when it's gotten in there, it's lodged in there, it has begun to work, then it gives birth to sin. 
After we think about something for a while, after Satan can get us to think bad thoughts for a while, that is the temptation. We think about doing something we shouldn't, and it kind of takes root, and it gets in there, and it's kind of this spiritual cancer, and it, it takes a hold. And then if we allow that process to continue, we take action. The action is the sin. But it starts with the thought before the sin. Then, when desire has conceived, verse 15, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, when we just are lost out there in sin, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every fiery dart of temptation that we talked about in our last session, if those fiery darts could could penetrate our shield of faith, work our way into our mind, get through that shield, work into our mind, then it would be a temptation. That's got to happen before it becomes sin, or someone takes action on it. That is the same way that Satan got them to look at and consider and think about things first. Think about Eve. Before Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, what did she do? She looked at it. She thought about it. She considered it. The, the seed was planted. And rather than getting rid of the seed, what did she do? She let it continue to grow and dig in and she saw that it was desirable. What about David with Bathsheba? Same thing, right? It didn't just happen. David saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. He thought about it. He considered it. He let that thought take seed and grow in his mind. He let that temptation stay there. And then eventually, it caused him to take action on it. That was the sin. Whether we are talking about the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, or the spouse trap of, hey, you're missing out. Still got what it takes. Whether we're talking about those or retirement security or illness and old age and some of the things we may be tempted to do, it's all the same. Satan gets us, seeks to get us to consider that the grass would just be greener if we do it this way. Think about this. There's an easy way out. There's a shortcut. If you just do it my way, you could be happier. You could be more fulfilled. You could have more. And you wouldn't even have to go through the, you know, the long, painful process of doing what God said. Isn't that what he did to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10? Took Jesus up on a high mountain. He said, all these kingdoms I will give you if you'll what? Bow down and worship me. If you'll take my shortcut and do it my way. Hey, Jesus, I can save you from the cross. I can save you from that crown of thorns. I can save you from all that scorn and ridicule. I can save you from paying out your lifeblood for these people that don't deserve it. I can save you all that grief of doing it God's way. All of that hardship. All of that struggle and pain. I can, if you'll just do it my way and take the shortcut, you can have all the kingdoms of the world. That's exactly what he did to Jesus. He, he tried to get Jesus to think about it. That's where he attacks is in the battlefield of our mind. In other words, Satan continually seeks to get you and me, all of us, to doubt the God of our salvation. Satan tries to plant seeds to get us to doubt the God who gave us salvation, just like he doubted Eve, who gave them paradise, 
Just like he tried to get David and was successful to doubt that he had enough and he went after Bathsheba. He tries to get us to consider that the grass is greener somewhere else. All begins right here. Satan tries to get you and I. Hear me, church. Satan tries very, very intensely to get you and I to doubt the God of our salvation. Satan tries to get you and I to doubt the God of our salvation in so many ways. One of the ways that he tries to get us to doubt the God of our salvation is by saying, I can do better for you. Nobody can do better than God. God only has yours and my best interest at heart in all things. Isn't that right? Does God have our best interest at mind in our marriages? Absolutely. But Satan will try to get us to doubt this God who has given us the best in all things and only wants the best for us in all things. He'll try to get into our minds. Brethren, turn to Romans 8. i got to tell you, i gotta, I got to throw out Paul's question here. This is where we need to turn when Satan tries to get us to doubt that God wants us to have the best in our marriages and in all things, doing it God's way and not taking the shortcut. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 2. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for all of us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? When you doubt or when Satan tries to get into your mind and tell you that God's way is not the best in your marriage or anything else, this is where you have to go. If God was willing to give his son for you, even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, as we quoted earlier out of Romans 5, 6. How will he not freely give us all things? God only wants your best. God wants you so happy you can't stand it. God wants you so full of joy and so full of gratitude that you can't stand it. And he's given us a plan to get there. Let's not let Satan make us doubt that just because we're having a bad day. Just because our spouse is human. He goes on in Romans 8, beginning at verse 35, to say this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, even in our distress, he says, even in our marital distress, for sure, as well. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You see, what we have to know, our helmet of salvation, what we have to know in our brains, in our heads, and what we have to protect ourselves with knowing, is to have no doubt about the fact that God keeps His word. That God only has our best in mind. We know and have no doubt about the fact that God showed His infinite love and grace and mercy to us by sending Jesus to die for us. We know that. We know that Jesus went to prepare a place for us. And if He went to prepare a place for us, He will come again and take us unto Himself that where He is, there we shall be also. Do we know that? If you're a Christian, you're sitting there and you're confused, let's try it again. Do you know that? If you trust Jesus, you know that because Jesus said that. 
He said, in my father's house were many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. We know that. So knowing that, that's part of our helmet of salvation. Because we have salvation in Christ, we know these things. We know that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, that if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, we know that. We know that we have the gift and guarantee of eternal life if we'll just follow Him. Romans 8, 1 through 18, 1 John 5. We know. 1 John 5, 19 and 20. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know, this is part of our helmet of salvation. This is part, because we have salvation, we know these things. And we know these things because God said them. We know that the Son of God has come. He has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. That is our helmet of salvation. Knowing how much God loves us. Knowing what He's already done for us. And if we know in our marriages how good God wants it to be, if we will just be the person God wants us to be and let Him have the lead, that is a wonderful part of all that we can be. Knowing the goodness of God and the certainty of His love is what guards, guides, covers and protects our thoughts and our minds and keeps them focused in the right place. We understand He only wants our best. And this is why when we become Christians, the scriptures repeatedly tell us that when we become Christians, we should undergo a complete change of mind and heart, don't they? We should have a different mind when we become Christians. Think about it. Romans chapter 6. I'm not turning there, just you're pretty familiar with the passage, but in Romans chapter 6, the first four verses or so, he talks about baptism, right? How we're baptized into Christ. Verse 5, that we should rise to walk in what? Newness of life. We should have a whole new lifestyle. We should have a different mindset. We should do different things. We should have this newness of life, leaving sin behind, and devote our members, our body parts, to only those things which are good. Same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 24 talks about us now that we know Christ, no longer walking in the futility of our, our minds, but being renewed in the spirit of our minds, getting to know God and the goodness of God, and that will protect us from Satan saying, hey, God don't love you. Hey, take my shortcut. Hey, your marriage isn't, isn't right. You need to go have an affair. Hey, uh, you're not getting uh, you know, the best. All of this stuff, knowing God's love is what protects our thoughts from Satan's temptations in those areas. Finally, Colossians 2 addresses our baptism and forgiveness. And you know what chapter 3 begins with? If we've been raised up with Christ, we are to keep our minds focused on things above. In all of these cases, when we become a Christian, we should have a change of mind. Knowing what we have in Christ Jesus when it comes to our salvation should be an impenetrable helmet that Satan cannot get through. You know, it should also cause us to see things and perceive things in a different manner. We should perceive our spouses different than we did before we were Christians. We should perceive them as a gift. We should perceive them as a treasure and something very, very special. We should never let Satan corrupt or corrode or cause us to doubt or do anything less than love them. 
protect them, nurture them, cherish them, forgive them, serve them the same way God did us. Ephesians 4, as we talked about earlier, verses 29 through chapter 5 and verse 33. We should let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind esteem them as better than ourselves. James, humbling ourselves, serving them, Philippians 2. Why? Because I know the love of God. I know I'm going to heaven. I know if, I, if, if I'm following Him and walking in the light, yes. And because I know that, I know that I can have a different mindset. I know that I need to treat my spouse the way God treats me. And look at all that God has done for me. That's the helmet of salvation. Okay? Ties right into the sword of the Spirit. Now, if we handle the sword of the Spirit correctly, here's the tie-in, like I said at the beginning, Satan can't get to the helmet. Think about it. If we handle the sword of the Spirit correctly against the adversary, he can't get in as close as to the helmet because we're holding him at bay with the sword. You see how that works? It's great to have on a great, great helmet, but with the, with the sword of the Spirit to keep him away from us, that helps too. He can't get to it. In our marriages, we should use the sword of the Spirit to eliminate Satan's lies and the doubt that he uses against us to destroy our oneness. You know, the sword is the only piece of the full armor of God that can be used both offensively and defensively. It's the only one. I suppose you could use the shield. Those shields had to have been heavy, didn't they? I mean, think of the size of those things. They had to be cumbersome. I mean, they were no good for close contact fighting. The sword is the only one that could be used offensively. And I want to tell you that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is the one weapon against which Satan has no defense. If God could come right out and say to you, look, I know Satan's powerful, I know he hates you, I know he's trying to try, I'm going to give you one weapon. One weapon that he cannot beat no matter what he does. He cannot defend against no matter what he does. He does not have the power to overcome no matter what he does. I'm going to give you one weapon that if you will use it and use it correctly, he cannot beat it. What would you say to that? Give me one. Give me 12. I have bad days. <laughs> give me one. You know what God's saying? I gave you one. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is Satan cannot defeat God's Word. Is that right? Amen. He can't beat God's Word. Consider, again, Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. We've talked about it a lot. Satan shows up at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights of Jesus fasting, and he tries to beat Jesus. He offers him bread when he's starving. What are the first three words out of Jesus' mouth during that temptation? It is written. God's word says. Did Satan beat that? No. Satan basically in the next temptation says, okay, you want to use scripture? I'll use scripture. So he quotes scripture to Jesus. Totally out of context. How does Jesus respond? What's his first three words in that case? It is written. Did Satan beat him there? No. Then we come to the third and final one that we've talked about. Satan says, I'll give you this shortcut. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus' first three words. Satan cannot beat. It is written. Satan cannot break 
the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He cannot beat it. He cannot break it. Worldly wisdom tries, but cannot. Look in your Bibles for just a moment. Colossians 2, beginning at verse 8. The world tries. The world tries through so many different avenues. Satan tries through the world, through so many avenues, to get us to go by something else other than the Word of God, and that's nothing new. Paul wrote to the Church of Christ in 1st century Colossae, almost 2,000 years ago. Colossians 2.8 Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Does that sound victorious to you? There's what gives us the victory. Jesus Christ, the walking Word of God, who fought with the written Word of God and went back to heaven to intercede for us and left us that sword that He had won all those battles with, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As you think about that, maybe it's easier to kind of picture this idea of why as we've got a husband and a wife, and they're back-to-back, and they're defending each other, why they both have to be strong Christians. Let me ask you a question. If you were in a regular fight as a Roman soldier, and you had somebody protecting your back, but they didn't have a sword, would you feel very secure? They had no sword. They're covering your back against enemy attack, and they've got no sword. No, you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. Same thing in a marriage. We both need to be fighting with that sword of the Spirit, because it is invincible. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is infallible. It is infinitely powerful and absolutely unbeatable. It is the victorious weapon of spiritual warfare which the Son of the living God Himself always wins with. Revelation 1 and verse 16, Revelation 19, 11 through 16, both talk about this sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. It's what He wins with even in the book of Revelation. As we get ready to conclude this particular session, I'd like to have you go in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Beginning at verse 11. Let's apply this to our marriages. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, Jesus was single, right? Jesus was never married to a woman on this earth. 
So, as we consider that whole text, how is it possible that he was tempted in all things as we are? How is it possible that he was ever tempted to not defend or forgive or fight for his spouse? He was single. How could he possibly know what it's like to be tempted not to be the loving, forgiving, sacrificial, and serving spouse that God intended all of us spouses to be, one might ask? Here's how. Because the church is the bride of Christ. Isn't that right? Jesus died for the church. Is that right? Was there a time in Jesus' life when he was tempted not to fight for the church? Gethsemane. Father, if there's any other way. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He was tempted not to go. But what did he do? He went, right? And he died for his bride. And he lives to defend his bride. As we talked about Hebrews 7.25, Jesus Christ knows what it's like to fight for his bride. And he stands ready to help at every turn whenever we need his help in the battle for our marriages. He knows what it's like to defend her at all cost. To cleanse her. Again, Ephesians 5.22 and following. He gave us the assurance, knowledge, and understanding of salvation that would serve as a helmet and say, Hey, you are saved. You need to be like God. You need to think like God. You need to do what God would do. And finally, he left us that same sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which he used to defeat Satan at every turn. And if you are not constantly using that invincible sword of the Spirit in your marriage to defend one another and your marriage against Satan, then you are not taking advantage of the only weapon that Satan has no defense against. Use it.